Hey there, Social Work 6533 students. Uh, have you noticed the introduction music is a little bit fast paced? Why am I playing fast paced introduction music, you ask? So glad that you asked that question. I'm playing fast paced introduction music because I want to get you in a certain kind of headspace. Because on this podcast lecture, we're going to be talking about some big ideas. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention here and during my introduction spiel is that we're going into week number four. I think that this is noteworthy because that means that we are a quarter of the way through our 16-week semester. We have arrived this far. This has been a weird semester. The coronavirus is out there making life strange and difficult for a lot of people. At the start of the semester, I think uh, if you were like me, you probably weren't exactly sure how things were going to go, but I think they're going pretty good, all things considered. And I'd like to keep it going in that direction. So thank you to all of you, seriously, for bearing with me during the semester as I figure out a lot of the things that I'm figuring out. Thanks for being responsive. Uh, thanks for all of the input that you're giving me in class and through emails and Zoom sessions and things like that. I do truly appreciate that. I think things are going pretty good. And I think if they continue going the way that they've gone so far for the remainder of our semester that everything's going to be pretty good. So now that I've done that, let's just do a little bit more introduction music, and then we'll come back and listen to our first big idea. synth pop vibe going on for this podcast lecture that wasn't planned it just kind of happened so uh yeah now that you know that let's talk about our first big idea i don't know how many of you will remember this but way back now uh, a month ago right because we're in week four of the semester a month ago in the very first class that we had together one of the things that i told you all was that when i get ready to teach a class what i like to do is to find, prior to starting it, one really big kind of idea or a theme maybe that I can grab and use as like a foundation. And if I have that, I feel like it's a lot easier for me to then go about kind of constructing this thing called a class, right? I, there's When I first started teaching, I didn't used to do this. I would just sort of, you know, kind of like week to week the class and... You know, that I, I don't know if how good or how bad that was, but from my perspective, my teaching has been a lot better ever since I started to do this thing where I, I have something like an idea, a big idea, this big foundational thing that I can say like this, this is what this class is about. Because with that, I can, I can actually do much better construction, much better planning. I can lay things out in a way that I think makes more sense than if I was just sort of like improving it, winging it, making it up as I went along. So way back in week one, uh, and during the class time, this wasn't during the podcast lecture, but during the actual time we met as a class, one of the big ideas that I shared with you was that I had been reading, it's something that I took from this book I'd been reading over the summer. I'm actually not done with it. I'm still reading it now. The name of the book is Cruel Optimism. It is by a woman named Lauren Berlant. And 
in that book, one of the things that Berland makes clear is that we live right now, you and me and all the people we know today, we're all living in a very, very specific time and place that is unlike the way that things were in the past in some really important ways. And she kind of identifies what those ways are. I'm going to give you a short version of this real quick here. So Berlant suggests that in the past, people were more communal. They were more neighborly. They felt a greater degree of connection to their, the people who lived around them in their building or in their neighborhood uh, with their coworkers, uh, with their own kind of like social network of friends and family, etc. And that from sometime maybe in the like late 60s on, this sort of started to degrade. And it really picked up speed in the 80s, continued through the 90s and the early 2000s. And here we are today where we're living lives that we could describe as very atomized. Now, I don't know if how many of you have heard that word before, so I'm going to describe what that means. When people live an atomized existence, what it means is that they are very, very disconnected from other people. Not totally disconnected, mind you, right? That's not what it means. It means that they're rather disconnected from other people. And one of the reasons that they're disconnected from other people is that they're so busy worrying about doing the things that they need to do just to kind of like get by in life. Uh, And Berlant's argument is that nowadays, a huge number of people, the, the vast, vast, vast majority of people, in fact, find themselves in situations where they have to work really hard just to make sure that they can get the things that they need just for themselves and possibly maybe for their immediate family. And once they've done that, once they've done all the different kinds of work that they've needed to do in order to get the financial resources, the health care and other resources they need to take care of themselves and possibly their immediate family, there's not really a whole lot of time, energy or money or other resources left over for people to try to do something like take care of somebody else. That's not something that we do a lot nowadays. And what I like about this argument that Berlant makes is that it is, I think, accurate. I think that's the situation that a lot of people are in. I was in that situation myself for a very, very long time. I remember it pretty well. Once I finished my MSW, you know, kind of going out into the world with a lot of student debt and being like, I need to find a job. It's got to be a job that pays me enough money so that I can do the things that I need to do. And for me, that meant working two jobs, all right? Because I that's just that's how it was when I graduated. That was the best I could do. I had to work like a main job that provided me with some, you know, a, a, an amount of money that was maybe just enough to get by with all of the things that I needed to do, like pay my rent, pay my car payment, my insurance, that sort of thing. Um, then I had a second job, which gave me, you know, the, the extra money that I needed for other things that I wanted to do. Right. And that was how I lived for a really, really long time. So working two jobs and not making a huge amount of money at either of them left me pretty tired, you know, at the end of my, my days and my weeks. And I didn't have, I I ended up becoming, I think less connected 
to a lot of people who were around me. It's not that I totally lost connection with people who were important to me, but I feel as though it was harder, definitely, for me to maintain like the connections with those people because I was working so hard. And, and Berlant's argument is that my experience is similar to the experiences of so many other people out there today. Maybe it's your experience. I don't know. I hope it's not, but maybe it is. Now, what I don't think I told you when I first introduced this idea back in class number one is that it goes deeper than this. Berlant also talks about the way that, you know, we think society was structured back in the, you know, 1950s and maybe early to mid 1960s. During that time period, there were these really kind of like gigantic social service programs. They had first been introduced during FDR's New Deal. And they had been then kind of maintained and extended. The last kind of president who really attempted to do tons and tons and tons of stuff with the federal government and create programs that would benefit people who were not extremely wealthy people was LBJ. Uh, that's Lyndon Baines Johnson. He was the guy who took over, of course, after Kennedy was assassinated. And he had this program called the Great Society. He wanted to do things like create public housing, and he wanted to do this thing called a war on poverty, right? It's interesting when you look at this, right? You know, the after Johnson, we don't have things like wars on poverty. We have things like wars on drugs and wars on terrorism. And what's interesting to me, and I'm, I just don't want to go too deeply down this rabbit hole, but I started talking, so I'll go a little bit down it. You know, uh, Johnson was saying poverty is an enemy, and I think we should eradicate poverty. If you think about the effects of that kind of a mission, that I, I would say that's a pretty interesting set of effects. Then, you know, starting in what was it? The, the war on drugs started in the 80s, I believe. You know, we have that. And then in the early 2000s, we have the war on terrorism. Uh, what, what I think is one of the differences here is with Johnson's great society and the war on poverty, you saw the federal government attempting to help people. That was primarily what it was trying to do. The war on poverty was saying like, hey, let's figure out how to help people who are poor. Let's figure out how to help people get ahead in life. That's what it was doing. You try and you go forward a little bit to war on drugs, war on terrorism, and it's not about helping people. It's about, you know, finding the bad individuals in the world and kind of getting revenge on them for being bad. It's just like a, such a fundamental difference, really, when, when you look at it. And the way that this all ties to Berlant is that she kind of says, you know, in the past, for a long, long time, people could have believed, thought that if something really bad happened to them, they lost their job, um, they, they had some kind of medical catastrophe, that the government would not allow for them to, uh, if they if they had done their part, if they had been productive members of society, that there would be programs there that would take care of them. You know, the remnants from that social security is one of the things that was created to do this kind of a thing. It's one of the few things which is still around today, and it's actually been pretty disempowered at this point, but it is still around, luckily. Uh, so that was one of the things that happened. Additionally, you know, people, they, they could depend on other people to a degree. They can depend on their, their immediate and extended family and social network of friends and kin and that sort of thing. They could depend on their neighbors. They could depend on their coworkers. Uh, that was something that people, that, that there was this sort of understood, unthought, unspoken about perhaps 
norm that people took care of other people. And in addition to that, not only people, but uh, companies took care of their employees. They made sure that they had good pension funds. They, they helped out their employees a lot. Uh, unions were around and very powerful, and they took care of their workers. Schools took care of people. Hospitals took care of the community that they were embedded in, so on and so forth, right? That there, there was just this greater expectation that you could and would be cared for by other people. And on top of that, there was also, of course, an expectation that if somebody who was in one of your various communities, your, your work community, your neighborhood community, your family, whatever, they needed help, that, that there would be, that people would come together and, and institutions would come together and kind of like come to the aid of that person or that family or that group that really needed help. We can still see this a little bit, I think, in our society. Every now and then it comes back. If there's a moment where there's like some kind of great tragedy, uh, a, a hurricane, an earthquake, um, something like that, during those times, you will see people kind of for a little bit, for a couple of weeks, kind of like mobilize and start to do things to try to help the people who have been affected negatively by whatever the disaster was. So that it does still exist, but it seems to only be activated now in moments of intense, intense, intense crisis. And I think that Berlant's argument is that in the past, there was much more of an impetus, much more of a norm that, again, people and institutions would be there when people encountered hard times and when families encountered hard times and when groups encountered hard times and that they would help. Now, the part of the reason why people would do this, and I, I think I've alluded to this, but just in case I didn't make it clear, is because everybody understood that at some point it could be them who needed something. And if that was the case, then it would be nice to feel as if your community would come to your aid. Now, I don't think that anybody really wanted to be the person who needed to be bailed out, but it was nice to assume that if you ever were that person, that it, it could occur. And now that I've talked about that, probably for, I, I didn't know what I was going to talk that long, but I did. Uh, so now let's try to tie this all in with this class. Let's try to make uh, make it clear why this big idea matters for the class that you're taking right now, that you're listening to this lecture for. One of the things that I want to suggest is that our whole society, our whole culture, has a certain set of values, things that it thinks are important and valuable, right? And if we were to think of those values, I, I want to imagine so that society is like a house, Okay, I'm going to argue that the values of a society are kind of like the beams and the joists that hold the house up. You don't see those things if you're just kind of like looking at the house from the outside or even if you're inside the house, you don't see them because they're covered with things like walls and floors. But a house wouldn't be able to stand if it didn't have really strong foundational beams you know, holding up the the walls and everything and joists, which are the thing that are underneath the floor so that when you walk on the floor, you don't fall through it. Uh, a structure needs those sorts of things. Society has values and values function as beams and joists. They're the things that hold the society up. I think that today, right here, right now, the society that you and me are living in, the major beams and joists that hold our society up are the importance of uh, self-sufficiency. This is something which is really big, that people should take care of themselves, that they shouldn't be needy, 
that they shouldn't rely on assistance from you know programs or p- other people. That's a big one. The importance of profit, you know, making money. That's a big one right there. And and the last one that I'll mention, there are probably more, but the last one that I'll mention is being productive. I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, I had a really good day today because I was really productive. Uh, We'll say things about people being productive members of society. You know, productive, I would say, means that people are able to take part in the economy, that they're able to produce profit either for themselves or probably for some other larger entity. And, and I would also say in our society, the people who have a, the hardest time being productive, these are the elderly, the chronically mentally ill, they're the people who are the least valued in our society. So let's run through that one more time. Some of the big beams and joys values that are holding up our society today, according to me, are uh, profit, self-reliance, and uh, what was the other one that I said? Being productive. That's what it was. Yeah. Those are the big three. I think that we could say, and I'm going to say, that our society is a very for-profit society. Our culture is a very for-profit culture. That's If we take a look at things that are for-profit, that make a big profit, we tend, they, they're looked at pretty nicely by our culture. Companies like Apple, Google, uh, really successful athletes, uh, these are the the kinds of things that are kind of like lauded and held up as ideals of really, really good people sometimes or things in, in our society because we have this very for-profit society. Now, what I think Lauren Berlant was talking about in her book, Cruel Optimism, and what I'm going to try to talk about here today is what if instead of us kind of investing in this idea in, in these beams and joists and these values that we do, these very for-profit values. What would happen if we invested in something different? I'm not going to say non-for-profit. I could say that. I thought about saying that. But instead, what if instead of for-profit, we invested in something that was for the general good? What would that look like? What would that be like? What if creating good for people was more important than creating profit, than being productive, than creating value, and value is generally speaking money, for oneself or a company or something like that. That's my big question here. So that's my introduction to the first big idea. What would happen if our society was less for profit and instead more for the general good? Think about that. So in week number two of the class, we took a look at the Flexner Report. And the Flexner Report was this thing that was written by a dude named Abraham Flexner. And in that report, you know, he'd been asked by people who were social workers to say, to take a look at what social workers do. And after he takes a look at it to say if he believes that social work is or is not a profession, he looked around, he wrote his report, and his report said it's not. He said social work is not a profession. 
Now, that report was written in the year 1915, and we're now in the year 2020, so 105 years later. And I think we can see that nowadays social work, you know, is seen as a profession by a lot of people. Social workers have a license. They have to go through a lot of education to get that license. They have to do things to keep that license active. Uh, They're expected to act in ways that are professional while they're doing their work, so on and so forth. Social work has become a profession. Now, you might think that that's a good thing. You might think that's a bad thing. That was part of what we talked about in week number two of the class, right? I don't think it's super clear cut that becoming a profession only delivered good things, nor do I think it was totally evil and only delivered bad things. It's somewhere in the middle there, right? But what I want to do now in this podcast lecture is kind of take that Flexner report and that big idea from Lauren Berlant that I talked about and kind of put them together for a little bit here and do that by asking you all who are listening to this a question. As social work became a profession, as it professionalized, did it move further or closer to the values of profitability, self-reliance, and the overriding importance of being productive. Did becoming professionals make social workers value those things more or less? Likewise, did becoming a profession increase or decrease the extent to which social workers work for the good of the largest number of people? Right. I think these are questions that are interesting. I think these are questions that are important to ask ourselves because, you know, social work for many, 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 many years of its rich history was something that I think might have been opposed to the idea that people are only valuable if they're productive, that it was opposed to the idea that making money, a profit, surplus value should be the most important thing in the lives of individuals, families, and institutions as well. That uh, social work was was this group of people, I think, and maybe I'm idealizing it, that's, that's a very realistic possibility, but it was this group of people that said there's a different way to live. There's a different way to organize ourselves. Let's try to do that. And the effects of professionalization are multifaceted. Now, like I said, there's some effects that are good. There's some effects that maybe aren't so good. And one of the effects that I'm really interested in is how professionalization affected the way that social work orients itself in relation to these very dominant kind of very American capitalist values versus a, a different set of values. So I, I guess I just kind of want us all to think about that if we could. If you want to come to class with comments, questions, answers, criticisms, concerns about that, that would be great. I'd really appreciate it if you did. One of the other effects of professionalization on social work was that as social work went from being more uh, uh, not a profession in the way that Flexner viewed it to a profession as it is today, is that it adopted a lot of rules and standards and started to implement those rules and kind of hold people to the standards that it created. So like you're you're all experiencing one of these right here and right now. Today, it is a standard that for you to have a license to be a social worker that you have a master's degree, not a bachelor's degree, but a master's degree, right? That's a standard that you got to meet. You'll all meet it when you're done with this program. Uh, 
there are standards in regards to getting continuing education once you have your license and not just any continuing education, but continuing education that is, you know, been vetted and shown to be valuable. Those sorts of things. These are, these are standards. There are rules that govern how social workers practice. If we take a look at the NASW code of ethics, um, it certainly does have some ethical components, but a lot of it to me also seems as if it, it we could see it as a code of rules in addition to being a code of ethics. You, you might think that it's more of a code of rules than a code of ethics. I'll leave that up to you to decide how you view that particular document, but I wanted to put that idea in your head, you know, for a, a few different reasons that will hopefully become a little bit more clear as we continue to do this class together. But yeah, social workers have adopted rules and they've adopted standards. And adopting those rules, adopting those standards has affected the kinds of values, or we could even call them principles, the beams and joists that hold up this thing called social work. And what I'm really interested in exploring in, in this class together with all of you is what what is this effect, right? What are the beams and joists that hold up this thing called social work? What are the values that social workers actually subscribe to not what they say they subscribe to but what they actually subscribe to and we should, we can see what they actually subscribe to by trying to take a really close look at how they behave at the things they do at the things they don't do looking at that is going to be more important than looking at things that social workers say about themselves and their profession uh, we can look at that too of course we can look at what social workers say about themselves and their profession that's fine but I don't think that we can always take what social workers say about themselves and their profession as the whole story. If they say, you know, as a soul, anytime somebody starts a sentence with as a social worker, whatever, 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 um, that's a value statement. That's a statement of principle. And it's interesting to see when people make those kind of statements, if their actions back up those statements or don't, I think sometimes we'll find that their actions in fact do. And other times we'll find that their actions, in fact, don't. The article that you read for class this week, I think, had a lot to do with this, right? It had a lot to say about the way that professional social work here and now today actually goes about doing things, doing stuff about what kinds of principles, values orient the things that social workers and social service agencies do. And, and these are really important things to look at. We can't take for granted that because somebody is a social worker, that they are um, concerned about vulnerable populations, that they are going to always be ethical, that they're always going to do the right thing. We can't assume that, nor can we assume that social service agencies are run well or that they uh, have values that we can agree with. And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And these are really important things to take a look at. So anyways, that's uh, let's, I talked a lot in the first section of this podcast. I'll talk a little bit shorter in this section. The, the thing I'm trying to bring up here and now is that, you know, professionalizing, which is something we did after Flexner wrote his report in 1915, had effects. One of the effects that I am really interested in is how professionalization has gotten social work and social workers to invest into doing things in a very rule-oriented and standardized way. And the way that it has influenced what principles and values social workers really tend to adhere to what are the the principles what are the values that act as beams and joists that hold up this thing called social work 
So that's a good question. Keep that in mind for when we come together as a class as well. So here we are going into the home stretch here. This is the last part of this long podcast lecture that you listened to for this week. So last, last, last week, um, week number three of the semester, you read those two articles on the four discourses, then we had our class on them. Now, my hope was that you would come to class having done the reading and that you'd be confused. So far, it seems like that's what happened. My second hope after that was that after the class and in going going back and forth in a Q&A kind of format, a very seminar style question, answer, free-flowing thing like we did, that you would become less confused about the four discourses. I find that the best way to teach about something really complicated like the four discourses is by having people read about them outside of class so that they can generate questions and come to class with their questions. And in, in doing that Q&A kind of thing like we did, that seems to be the best way to actually get it. So I hope that I'm right about that. If I'm wrong, uh, you can tell me and I, I will listen, but I, I really hope that I'm right. So you did that, and I wanted you to, to go through that experience, go through that reading and that Q&A before you read the article that you read this week for class, which is about the characteristics of human service organizations. And the reason I wanted to do it that way was so that when you read about the characteristics of human service organizations, you could start to think to yourself, I wonder what discourse the human service organizations are operating in. I think that that's actually a really good question for us to ask. And if we ask that question, as we become a little bit more proficient in thinking in the four discourses, we'll be able to, to answer it and answer it probably a lot quicker than we can today. So that's actually the, the last bit here. That's the last thing I had to say. Uh, I don't know if this worked, but what I was trying to do with this podcast lecture, I really hope it worked, was take you know, the stuff from the first week where we talked about, or, or at least I talked about, and you listened and participated in a conversation about these kind of like very big, very aspirational ideas about what kind of society we want to live in. You know, today I suggested that we live in a very for-profit society. And I, I asked the question, what would happen if instead of living in a society that was fixated on profit and self-reliance and productivity, if we lived in a society that instead valued doing things that were good for people, just, just making the world good for people, uh, not making it necessarily super efficient, not necessarily making it super productive and uh, maximizing the profits of people, but, but just trying to do the best thing we can. Now, you know, Lauren Berlant says that, that today, when you say something like that, people think that they kind of like scoff at you and they, they say that you're saying something fantastical and like you're being super kind of like, I don't know, um, hippy-dippy, crunchy granola, kumbaya, Pollyanna about everything. But but seriously, I mean, like, why do we look at it that way? Why? What would happen if instead of assuming that that was a fantasy, uh, the, instead of assuming that a world where people kind of did things for good as opposed to for profit, instead of assuming that that's a fantasy, what if we said, why does it need to be a fantasy? Why can't it be a reality? And we asked that as a genuine information seeking kind of a question. So that's what we opened with. Then we talked about professionalization in the Flexner report, which we read in week two. And, you know, the the way that that 
attempt to professionalize the the effect that that had on society and did it the effect that it had on uh the values you know that social workers and society in general tend to really buy into the beams and joists that hold up social work and the society that we live in and then i i wrapped up by trying to tell you that the article that you read for this week about the characteristics of human service organizations which we'll spend a lot of time talking about in class when we meet uh, and trying to say that you could look at a lot of that content through the lens of the four discourses. I tried to remind you that the four discourses are complicated. So if you try to look at things through those lenses, you're still probably pretty confused at this point, but that's okay. As long as you're a little bit less confused than you were two weeks back. And that's all I got to say. So thank you very much for taking the time to download and listen to this thing. I will see you all in class. I look forward to it. Until then, uh, don't let the man keep you down. Make some glorious mistakes. Take care.